Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and film curator and historian Alicia Fletcher. It's no secret that Hollywood loves movies about itself. In the 30s and 40s, Hollywood movies celebrated the glamour and the glitz of stars as an escape from the Great Depression. Or it created propaganda for wartime efforts, like 1944's Hollywood Canteen. When Hollywood did make movies that criticized itself, they went and critiqued earlier versions of Hollywood, or they went after individual stars instead of the actual system. Think of Sunset Boulevard's tale of a forgotten silent star run amok, featuring actual forgotten silent stars. Buster Keaton has a pretty nice little cameo in that. So in 1975, with the studio system basically dead, Hollywood started making movies about that. And that's when things got weird. But first, let's get into what exactly was different between the studio system and new wave Hollywood, which I guess at that point was just Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess new Hollywood. Yeah. We just kind of said in the show that new Hollywood is Hollywood. The big change is just kind of the powers of the studios falling apart. When I talk about the powers of the studios, it's like, think of MGM and those crazy contracts. Uh, it was a, partially a slow dissolution, stuff like unions becoming stronger, uh, more representation for various actors, things like that, and partially just big independent hits that really ignited kind of the imagination of the viewing public. So suddenly the uh, studios were on their heels, uh, and and these new uh, upstarts, uh, a lot of people who had grown up with the movies and had kind of a different idea about how to make movies, Uh, seemed to be what people wanted to watch. So suddenly uh, a lot of these people had so much power, a very director-driven decade where uh, kind of writer-directors who were were operating at first outside of the system and then quickly the system (laughs) desperately (laughs) tried to get them on their side uh, because they seemed to have some sort of sauce that the old uh, uh, machine could not produce anymore i think especially the 60s there'd been a lot of kind of big classic hollywood productions that just fell flat and audiences didn't care for them well what about the concept of like the the glossy star itself because like you talked about mgm and mgm's whole thing was that they created Mm. the stars and they had hollywood fixers and all this and now you had this like like you had dennis hopper who was uncontrollable you know (laughs) or warren Beatty, who's just like it's all over the tabloids his personal love life so you started to see more people who were stars in this like gritty sort of way rather than this polished glamour yeah and i also think that there's uh there's a way that they didn't know who could be a star I know we're not to spoil the future, but we're talking about 1971 soon on the show and the talk of like Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman was a guy who had been acting 
uh, he was, I think, in his 40s when he really became famous. And it's just like out of nowhere. This guy that nobody wanted to cast in anything was the number one A-list star that everyone's like, heck yeah. And that he, that's the kind of thing where it's like the studio could never have seen that coming. Like, yeah, you know, Roy Scheider. He's just a he's just a guy. He's handsome, but you know you get the feeling that 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 old system probably wouldn't have propped up these guys who, you know, most of them are method actors. Most of them are kind of rough looking, uh, naturalistic guys. It's it's weird, and they didn't want to be controlled. You're absolutely right. So suddenly, and I think it's the same with the directors. The the new Hollywood directors wanted to do things their way, and at the moment in 1975, their way was producing a huge box office and really connecting with people. I think one of my favorite old versus new Hollywood stories is, of course, the story of Marathon Man. You know that old chestnut anecdote where, in the famous torture scene, the classical actor of stage and screen, Laurence Olivier, was uh, pulling the teeth from. Dustin Hoffman's character. And uh, Dustin Hoffman, of course, famous method actor, couldn't quite get the reaction right. So he asked Lawrence to actually pull at his teeth. And Lawrence Olivier said to director John Schlesinger, why doesn't he just try acting? Apparently that story, not apocryphal. Schlesinger has confirmed it in recent interviews. Oh, yeah. And speaking of Schlesinger, he may not have become a household name like Spielberg or Coppola, despite directing memorable and quotable films like the aforementioned Marathon Man and Midnight Cowboy. Uh, Midnight Cowboy was a mega hit in 1969. It's one of the films credited with creating New Hollywood. And in 1975, the critics were all excited to see a film that reunited Schlesinger with Midnight Cowboy screenwriter Waldo Salt, tackling another book that seemed unfilmed. But if we learned anything from Tilda Swinton in season one of this podcast, it's that if people say something is unfilmable, you're at least on the right track for something different and ambitious. Different and ambitious is certainly what describes Day of the Locust, a film about the people on the outskirts of 1930s Hollywood. I hadn't seen this movie before the podcast, but then I went and watched it twice just to make sure I got everything the first time. Alicia, what is Day of the Locust? Oh, it is a nightmare. If I had to name a film that is maybe depicts hell the most accurately, or at least how I picture hell. Um, it's Day of the Locust. And it's weird because it, it, it's not a fantasy film. It doesn't take place <laughs> in hell like so many films have in the past. Um, it takes place at, you know, Grauman's Chinese Theater. It's based on a book that was written in 1939 by Nathaniel West. Um, not a hugely recognizable name. He was a modernist author, died, I think, in the 1950s in a car crash, so kind of derailed um, his memory and his career. It's a book that caused a lot of controversy upon its publication in 1939. Hollywood obviously did not like it. Uh, and so it's not a huge surprise that it took that many decades for it to get adapted. It's set amongst this sort of you know, set of people who flocked to Hollywood. And of course, this this happened as early as the 1920s, being promised, you know, by media that they would could be a star, that anyone could be a star, the every man, the every woman could be a star, which we know was not true. Uh, and they're, you know, if they're lucky, they're relegated to being extras in these big films. Um, and that's the case for Karen Black's character, uh, Faye Greener. Her father is played by Burgess Meredith, who most of our listeners would recognize as the Penguin from the original uh, Batman. Um, I shouldn't say original. Batman goes back really far, <laughs> but the Adam West uh, Batman. What about his Rocky's and, training? Oh, man, that's true. Yep. Yeah, I mean, 
I love Burgess mm-hmm. Meredith. And if you love Burgess Meredith, this is the Burgess Meredith uh, film to see. Mm-hmm. And he was certainly award, uh, lots of nominations for this performance. But he is sort of this old vaudeville trooper, um, you know, very ill, working as a door-to-door salesman for, like, fake medicine, basically, which was a thing. And he would kind of perform his old routines I'm going to give you absolutely free a genuine bottle of Miracle Solvent for nothing. Just give me 25 cents to cover costs to bits order. They only cost half that in the store. And they all congregate around the San Bernardino Arms, which is this very um, cheap, you know, like apartments, hotel apartment style. And so you have a lot of up and coming not, not even up and coming. They're they're not. They're neither up nor coming. They are down. <laughs> they are being forgotten. You know, <laughs> actors trying to make into Hollywood and also crew. Um, and so William Atherton, who stars in this film, is East Coast, I believe, Yale educated artist who's trying to make it into the art departments um, for Paramount. And then you have Faye Greener, who is this uh, very intense, unlikable character played by. An immensely talented actress who I love with all my heart, Karen Black. And quite possibly one of the most likable actresses out yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> and she's, yeah, she's really something. Uh, we'll, we'll get into her in a second and where she was in her career because yeah. 75 was a, a bonkers year for her. And, you know, she she has the Jean Harlow hairstyle. She wears the clothing. She is utterly talentless. And like many of these women who are pretty... Um, but didn't have the talent, she's, you know, gets excited when she might appear for two seconds in an Eddie Cantor film as a harem girl. That's like the most... They edited out her Gypsy Rose Lee yes. to put her in yes. in that scene, which is wild. Yes, which, you know, is the most she can hope for. And you watch these characters grapple with how depraved Hollywood is. And when I say Hollywood, both Nathaniel West in the novel and John Schlesinger in directing this film... Have Hollywood in, you know, the years where the Depression is ending right before World War II really uses Hollywood as a metaphor for what was wrong with America as a whole. As much as this film is about how decrepit filmmaking was during this time and probably was during 1975 as well and how lecherous and terrifying it was, it's also about what what was happening to the country being depersonalized, uh, the loss of freedom, being promised this big American dream that never existed, um, and just watching people sink lower and lower and lower until you are at a film premiere, Cecil B. DeMille film premiere, which is how the film ends, and utter, I've never seen chaos on film like this outside of like Saving Private Ryan. I would argue that the scenes, and I don't know how much we want to spoil about the third act of this film because it is... Go watch the movie. It's great. I think we're all recommending yeah, it. Yeah, it's remarkable. It, it it turns from, you know, this kind of Hollywood melodrama, although it's never really that. You can always sense something is bubbling over into a full-blown horror film. The locusts, you know, from the title, from the book, really are the people who are ravaged by this kind of lifestyle and this promise of fame and this this 
consumerism of wanting to literally devour actors who you're obsessed with. Talking about America, there's this weird idea of like, if you just try hard enough, you put yourself in the right situation, you're going to achieve mm -hmm. that thing. And I think that's embodied best in weirdly Jackie Earl Haley playing a little girl named Adore whose mother is trying to make this character a child star in the vein of Shirley Temple. And not only is this child completely talentless, but they are a nightmare human, which actually kicks off the right the riot at the end of the film. I would have stomped that child and I'm a parent. Yeah. So I <laughs> thought it was a little boy. Yeah, I boy. thought it was a little boy too. Did you? I yeah. thought it was a little girl. No, the it's, name is Adore. Yeah, it's, it's a name. Yeah, it's like a the, cutesy. The child's name uh, is Adore. But there is a referent for this character, I think. I've never seen this published, but to me, this is the hair especially and the costume is molded after a child actor named Buster Phelps, who um, was a huge child actor in the 1930s. You would recognize his face the most annoying human being at least on screen you could imagine like i love some of the films he's in like three on a match which is scott betty davis and um uh joan blundell i want to murder this child mm -hmm. um in in this film he's at one point thrown into a pond i'm like drown just drown and so and he's like he's a good character he's not meant to be a bad character so when jackie earl haley is playing this little boy like that that's what I'm picturing. I think this film is picking up on the cycle of 30s and 40s. Um, you know, Jackie Coogan is a bad example because he was such a good actor, but all of his, his sibling, yeah. not so much. Um, picking up on these actors that were just so annoying that were trained from birth mm. to be these little performers. Come on up and see me sometime, big boy. <laughs> Adore, Adore, where are you? Adore! Well, because this was a relatively new thing, wasn't it, Cam? Like the, the concept of the child star. Yes. Well, it's uh, it was a huge thing partially because of Shirley Temple and because she was making so much money in the Depression. She was making $1,000 a week. So suddenly – and you know what? It's not super new also because yeah. kids on vaudeville were huge. So I think a lot of people thought, you know, that their kid was their meal ticket, essentially. You could come down here. I, I, there's a movie I recommend, even though it's kind of a crummy horror movie, called What's the Matter with Helen uh, that stars Debbie Reynolds and Shelley Winter. And they, they are hiding out in Hollywood as two people teaching essentially a school to mold your child into a little Shirley Temple. And it's funny, kind of in the same way as Day of the Locust. Does someone see... get slapped? Please tell me someone gets slapped. Uh, oh, I mean, it gets pretty bad. <laughs> What's the matter? <laughs> does, with... does There's someone a lot... get stomped? Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, there's a lot the matter with Helen is is the truth. But uh, um, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting thing because it was this industry of essentially trying to sell people. And we know... Jackie Coogan made it, but they mm -hmm. took all his money. And, and there just wasn't much more than Shirley Temple, right? There was kids that made some money, but there was, was no... Peggy. Yeah, there, it was, it was, you're right. It was mostly like, there were three or four superstars. Mm. If in 2021, we only remember Shirley Temple, there's other names. Yeah, so there was a lot of parents thinking this way, that they could be the impresario to this young child, go to Hollywood, and of course, it, it never works out. Um, I, you brought up that film with Shelley Winters and Debbie Reynolds, which I, I love. But also, I mean, this is kind of tackled in uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane mm. on sure, the, like, yes. the yeah. vaudeville circuit, right? Yeah. But in the silent era, yeah, kids were kids were a big, big market. Um, and Jackie Coogan was a huge, huge star. I will definitely say uh, <laughs> What's Wrong with Helen is definitely a ripoff of Whatever Happened to Baby <laughs> <Yeah>. Jane. <laughs> that sounds don't, right. Don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, and this kind of connects with what I think is – why, you know, 1975, 
this 1930s story kind of connects to because it's also a incredibly depressed economic time. Uh, you know, there's like stagflation you talk about uh there's inflation in england the unemployment is crazy the gas price thing i think it was a time that it was not the great depression but it felt like we might be (laughs) just around the corner and there's this crazy thing that even beyond this movie there's like a series of movies that are about hollywood at the time and this kind of Mm -hmm. dream thing because there's the great waldo pepper in 1975 that's about a stunt pilot there's inserts that's about people uh, trying to add pornographic film mm-hmm. into their old time movies to, for mm-hmm. money. Uh, and there's Hearts of the West. That's one with Jeff uh, Bridges. That's like about, you know, cowboy movies. It's just kind of this idea. Yeah, you can, I think in 1975 and 1930, tell that there is this draw to, it's not get rich quick, but it's like that get discovered and, and get pulled out of this uh hopeless economic time. Yeah. We're making this film sound very dark and dour, but it's also incredibly gorgeous. It's one of the most beautiful films I think I've ever seen. And I think my favorite example of the cinematography is when uh, the William Atherton character takes the Karen Black character out on a date to the Hollywood sign and they're eating ice cream in this beautiful sunlight and there's this like gauzy, ethereal sort of quality. And in the background, you can hear a tour operator talking about the suicide of Peg Entwistle which Alicia's going to tell you about in a moment. And he yells out my favorite line, naked she was born and naked she died. And I'm just like, oh my God, what a beautiful contrast. Naked she was born and naked she You wouldn't died. believe the way I am about chocolate. You know what? What? One time when I was a little girl, I locked myself in a bakery truck and ate the chocolate off everything. <laughs> I think I think that line is actually pulled from one of the newspaper reports of this wow. actress's wow. death. I mean, we say actress. She appeared in one film in 1932. Like the, the Faye Greener character played by Karen Black came to Hollywood, expected more than she got, and then um, climbed the, at that point it said Hollywood land and not Hollywood. Uh, it was a, a, a sign built for like promotion of a film. It was really not a landmark at this time, but it would become one because of Peg and Twistle's um, suicide when she jumped off of uh, the sign. And I think she did survive for a number of weeks, but eventually succumbed to her injuries. And I mean, no one cared about Peg and Twistle at the time, like before this incident. It really just became Hollywood lore. And then that Hollywood sign became a spot where any tour guide would take you know, the people, the tourists of Hollywood and recap that story, um, which you see in the film. And it is it is pretty accurate, I think. It's super just insane that like a, you know, like a real estate promotion is now a part of the like landscape sort of thing you know that's so weird right it was it was promoting like a subdivision or something Uh, yeah i don't even know what it was i don't even know if it ever got built (laughs) yeah yeah i think that whole thing of um the dream and then the takedown because i mean that's everything this is even um the character of homer simpson which Mm. so uh, from what i understand matt graining claims that the name homer simpson did not come from this apparently you can dig up him saying that it was inspired by the book but he yeah. also says it wasn't. That's bullshit. So, I yeah. and I read that. Bef- I mean, I'd seen this film before, but I read that. You know, oh right, I get, um, IMDb trivia says basically like he did not get inspiration yeah. from this from The Simpsons. And then you watch the film, and you're like, are you kidding yeah. me? And this is he, this is yeah. a character played by Donald Sutherland. Who I don't think we've mentioned yet. No. 
um, who doesn't really... And a very different role for him, too. Oh, like, this yeah. is very unusual. Yeah. Uh, if you think about, like, Don't Look Now, um, like, yeah, this is different Donald Sutherland. Um, and he doesn't really appear until the second half of the film, and yet mm-hmm. he is very much the first build actor and one of its stars. And should we say, you know, should we said also that the other performance that's always cited in this is Burgess Meredith. I mean, he dies pretty early in the film. So it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting case of like taking your stars and kind of manipulating audience expectation, I think. Um, this is... Well, and the this... point of view shifts as yeah. well of who you're supposed to be yes. behind. Yes. You're like, oh, I'm following Willie, Willie Matherton and he's my audience. Or I get, oh, nope, yeah. nope, nope. Now I'm moving over here. Now I'm over here. So you're never quite sure who you're supposed to be with at any given time. Yeah. Homer, to quote William Atherton's character as well as Karen Black, is a dope. Mm-hmm. You know, in Hollywood terms, he's a dope as a caricature. In reality, he's probably on the spectrum or has um, an impairment of some sort. Uh, He's an accountant or a former accountant, pretty middle class, which, of course, these other characters are not. You know, they have no, they don't have two nickels, two bits to rub together, whereas Homer's character does, and they take advantage of that throughout the film. He's sexually repressed in in a, a very damaging way. And so pairing him with a character like Faye Greener, who's really cashing in on her sexuality, um, and William Atherton's character, who is a predator. There is um, an attempted rape scene in this film, which is pretty graphic. Um, it's not, there's no nudity, it's not, and it, it, it is t- attempted, but it's graphic because of when it happens in the film and how much you think you're supposed to be on William Atherton's character's side, Todd. Mm-hmm. And then he does this to Faye Greener when she's not interested in a sexual relationship with him. Um, and it really, that's really where the shift happens for me in this film. It's kind of, that's the first signal, like this is going to become a horror film. Yeah. And it's, it does very rapidly. We should be clear as well. There also is animal abuse in this. There's cockfighting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a full cockfight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. So that that for me was difficult to watch because I was like, oh, I don't like that. I, don't like I that have never seen such, such graphic scenes of cockfighting in a film. There's not many films I would watch that <laughs> revolve around cockfighting rings. <laughs> but um, I mean, I always think of the Seinfeld episode with little Jerry Seinfeld, mm-hmm. but uh, which is Kramer's chicken i think schlesinger and cinematographer conrad hall and if i can throw in just a weird little piece of trivia for you uh the um the dailies were actually watched by polanski to reference the the visual style for chinatown this was so beautifully done that they were like we want chinatown to look like this this cinematography is unbelievable it almost if people are familiar with the look of like mccabe and mrs miller or some of the altman films from that period it almost looks like the negative is fogged Mm -hmm. so you get this sort of blurry photographic but very warm quality to this film where you know it sets you up in the beginning to think this is a golden a film about the golden age of Hollywood and literally the light is golden and then before you know it the whole goddamn world is on fire and there's a child's head being stomped on (laughs) um spoiler alert yeah, <laughs> are you supposed to say that first? Sorry, yeah, <laughs> just no, that's fine. cut Listen, that. We, we've been dancing around it. Um, so it is. It's it's so stunning, and so those the cinematography of the cockfights is aggressive. The editing is incredible because it inner it intercuts scenes of the violence of these these poor creatures fighting each other with Faye Greener kind of like trying to like dance in lingerie. She's really the predator as well, as well as the victim. Scenes of William Atherton as he's, you know, drinking a lot and there's going to be a lot of violence at this party where the cockfight is taking place. Mm-hmm. It's almost, it, it really is like almost Russian uh, montage, like editing, like Padovkin. Like it's, yeah. it's, uh, 
interesting. You just don't have the propagandic music over over it. Um, <laughs> but yes, if you are sensitive, to, I, I'm very sensitive as you are to Becky to uh, violence and animals. And I'm sure because it's 1975, there were rules about, you know, harming animals. I, my hope is this production did it ethically, but I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't. It's it's something. It's really something. Well, let's get into Karen Black just for a second, because she was, I mean, 1975 for her was absolutely ridiculous, but her last seven films had done insanely well. She Mm -hmm. was basically brand new in the industry uh, into the 70s in Hollywood. She'd done some television before that, but like really her her entree in was ridiculous. She'd just gotten off doing The Great Gatsby. Airport 75 was the year before that. Mm -hmm. And then she comes in and goes, bam, Day of the Locust, bam, Nashville. And she's like one of the biggest uh, actresses in the planet. Um, She sat down with uh, Roger Ebert for an interview. He has this great series. I guess he was living in in Hollywood in Los Angeles at the time, where he's sitting down with all these different actors and and actresses in 1975 uh, at the Beverly Hills Hotel, having cocktails and lunch with them. And she came in uh, with her publicist. And I just love this description, if I just may, of where she was kind of at. She wears a 1930s outfit of peach and white and a big floppy white hat. She examines the menu. I want to get something good for myself. She says, I'm not a health food nut, but I like to eat health foods. <laughs> Be honest, says her publicist. What you would like right now is a Nathan's hot dog. Of all the things in the world I would never devour, she says, her eyes still <laughs> on the menu, is very first a hot dog. Not even a Nathan's hot dog, which for people not familiar, that is the Cadillac of hot dogs in terms of... <laughs> no, she would never <laughs> devour a hot dog. I mean, it's also, <laughs> you could only get them at Coney Island at that time, but yeah. And I love this woman because like every interview she gave was just like a little bit elevated. That She had this beautiful articulation to her and yet she could play these characters that were like hell in a dress on one hand and the other hand, like complete burning innocence. So it's just, she's just a fascinating human being and that's what makes her a compelling actress. She's got all that in her. I think she's one of my favorite actresses, someone who she passed away quite a while ago and I was just too young to appreciate appreciate her at the time. Um, she had been doing some Toronto. I had seen her give a talk in Toronto. It was, it was mesmerizing, but I didn't know her films very well in my early 20s, to be honest. She can embody the grotesque in a way that when I read about who was supposed to be cast in this role, I cannot imagine them being able to pull it off. And that is Goldie Hawn, who I love. Do not get me wrong. Love Goldie Hawn. She could not have done this, I think, in my opinion, or would have done it very differently and it would have changed the outcome of the film. And Jane, she's got that innocence to her is the problem, right? Like, because yeah. you have to have that. Frey Greener knows exactly what she's doing when and her manipulations. Yeah. And Jane Jane Fonda was the other. Um, mm-hmm. And Jane Fonda had done um, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Which is a similar story in some ways to this film. But again, love Jane Fonda. My God. This is Karen Black's film. And it's Hard for me because when I read, um, you know, this film didn't do very well at the box office. It lost money. And we can talk about that in a bit, why we think why. Um, and critics were were treated it as an oddity, but mostly as a failure, which I don't think it is. But a lot, John Schlesinger, the director, blamed it on um, Karen Black not being pretty enough. Oh, God. She is. She slightly has like astigmatism, so there are scenes there. It's very effective in this film where she looks a little bit cross-eyed. She's a beautiful woman. Like anyone saying she's not pretty enough mm-hmm. is insane. But she's not typical pretty. That's true. She's definitely not the typical pretty that you would see in 1970s or 1930s Hollywood. And that works so, so well for not just this film, but most of the films she's in, including Nashville. Um, she, You believe that she is desperate to become famous. Not because she's got a talent or she wants to perform through artistry she just wants to be on magazine covers and so you know 
it works really well when she's feverish in this sort of pursuit. Her not being stereotypically or prototypically beautiful, um, I think, works really, really well. She's still lusted after by everyone in this film, um, every predator. Like, everyone is a predator in this film, as you can imagine. And she's her own, her own, her own kind of predator. But the way that she's filmed by Conrad L. Hall, the way that Schlesinger directs her, there are scenes that look like she is in a Hieronymus Bosch painting. It's yeah. that's how scary it is when she sings this. If you watch this film, you will never get the song Jeepers Creepers out of your oh. head ever. And when she sings it, she sings it to annoy her father to, when she's mad at him because he hates that song. And it's, it's really a light motif throughout the film when she's singing it with the worst voice you can imagine, um, you know, purposefully. It's oh, my God. It's just like it's like nails on a chalkboard. And that works. And to be that brave as an actress um, and not worry about being gorgeous or well lit or coming off well mm-hmm. just to like really dedicate yourself to this disgusting role i i mean i i applaud an I actress applaud and a professional singer it should be said <laughs> so like, for, yeah she could sing that's she's thing. a good singer and she i think she maybe even had an album at the time yeah she the picks had come out the year mm. previously and she does the entire soundtrack for the oh, picks yeah. which if people haven't seen there's a hidden gem uh karen black <laughs> christopher Plummer thriller from canada yeah. that's totally worth your time i just want to kind of wrap up this segment by talking about the performance with geraldine page playing this uh this radio televangelist in the 1930s they take the burgess meredith character to in a faith healing sort of way uh because amy semple mcpherson is another thing that modern viewers aren't going to get that parallel but man and that's a heck of a story, too, and an incredible parallel that they they put into this movie about scumbags who are being predatory. Famous Canadian, Amy Simple yep. McPherson, um, born in Ontario, uh, in a, I think around Woodstock, Ontario, and really kind of was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first to popularize the idea of the radio evangelist. And if for yeah, the charismatic Christianity, they call it. Yeah, it's like its own religion. For anyone listening to us who may be familiar or watched the recent HBO um, Perry Mason series, that you really get to see that at play during this time. I mean, that that show, I believe, takes place in yeah. the mid 30s, if not 1939. So um, this this person, Amy Simple McPherson, you know, would have these giant revivals. She she founded the um, Four Square. Uh, church, which is, I believe, somehow still standing in Echo Park in LA. I could be wrong, but um, she, or rather the tower. She would, you know, you would see thousands of people show up for this. It would be broadcast on radio. It would be, it would be theatrical. It was theater. It was performance art. The problem is, oh. is it then generated um, a lot of donations and basically was an embezzlement uh, scam. She dies of a drug overdose yeah. in the 1940s. Oh, and she faked her own kidnapping too, so she could hang out with her lover, which is not 100% proven. It was dismissed by the grand jury. From the evidence, it looks like she faked it, but Which, there is a... that, and that's a bit what the uh, what the Tatiana Maslany version yes. of it is in Perry Mason, where she's maybe involved in large Perhaps crimes. Perhaps they murdered a baby. Like there's a lot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there's a lot, but I mean, it's a very short sequence, but it's one of the film's strongest. And you write Geraldine Page, who's a very noted. Uh, Broadway actress and had pe- appeared in very famous roles in film. She plays it really well as Big Sister, I think is her character's name. And you get the kind of like 
picture the neon sign, like the neon cross is on, on the stage. And of course, Burgess Meredith is truly dying. So when they wheel him up in his wheelchair and she's supposed to heal him, he falls out of the wheelchair and can't get up. And it's, um, you know, and Karen Black's character is so hopeful, like maybe this is real. And of course it's not. We know it's not. If you are into Hollywood, old Hollywood, I can't tell if you're going to hate this or love it. I mean, I love the films from the period that it's really talking about. I love watching Judy Garland. And I will say, just to add to Cam's point about why 1975 is so interesting with films like Valentino and Nickelodeon and Silent Movie and The Last mm. Tycoon, and as well as the ones that Cam mentioned. You know, someone like Judy Garland dies in 1969 and you're getting a full sense of what her life was like in 1939. It's it's really being revealed around the late 60s and the 70s of MGM pushing drugs on her as, as a child, what they did to young, young actresses, including children with their weight, that these lives that, you, you know, someone like Faye Greener is trying to achieve are utter misery and often end in drug addiction or and death. That's something that can only happen in 1975 because you couldn't have made this film in the forties right after it was published the book, because that's mm. Hollywood was not going to allow that stuff out. And it's totally. really in the late sixties and seventies where you're like, Oh, right. Drugs, alcohol, sex, death, yeah. <laughs> suicide. Like that's all being revealed. All of what seventies loves. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's worth saying too, starting with Geraldine page and, and Burgess Meredith and the screenwriter, Waldo salt, they were all blacklisted in Hollywood. Um, so this is also an interesting collection, seemingly purposeful, since there's that many people involved who are blacklisted, uh, of showing the people uh, who couldn't be in films, honestly, up until yeah. the 60s. Some people, uh, it took them that long I to get back. I think it's Waldo Salt's second last screenplay, if not his last. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's considered a classic. We're not going out on a limb here. <laughs> and it days. is on Hollywood Suite, if you're listening to this around the time of airing. It's a film that we've had frequently on Hollywood Suite. Um, and so that is one way you can watch it. I will say my partner, Brendan, after we watched this last night and uh, he had never seen it, after the, hor you know, the horror of this third act of this film, he just looked at me and said, well, thank you for that. And then was silent for the rest. I don't think he liked it that much, but he loved that third act. And that's why you're together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay, so when we come back, this film was panned by Today Show critic Gene Shalit, and he simply held up a sign that said, bomb. <laughs> Will we dismiss it so wordlessly? Well, no, because it's a podcast, but we're going to have some things to discuss. This thing gets wild. That's coming up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
The A-list actor releasing an album where they sing is pretty standard. Last season, we talked about rock stars wanting to be movie stars, so why shouldn't movie stars try their hand at singing careers? Well, in the early to mid-70s, Sybil Shepard was one of the hottest movie stars around and one of the hottest models. How about a memorable debut in The Last Picture Show, followed by roles in Daisy Miller and one of my personal favorites, The Heartbreak Kid. So in 1973, Sybil decided to release an album of Cole Porter standards called... Sybil does it dot 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 to Cole Porter. Was it any good? Well, someone who thought it was solid was Sybil's romantic partner at the time, writer-director Peter Bogdanovich, who proceeded to craft At Long Last Love, a classic Hollywood-style musical set around Cole Porter hits for Sybil and some of his usual stable of actors, including Madeline Kahn, Eileen Brennan, and newcomer Burt Reynolds. Uh, it was a notorious flop. In fact, one critic said Sybil Shepard displays as much charm as a hamster, but the movie is now being reevaluated. Um, it even got a surprising recut and a Blu-ray release. So what do you guys think? Is uh, At Long Last Love an appropriate title for this movie? Cam? <laughs> I mean, I'm not holding up a bomb sign silently, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I'm close. I don't know. There, there's bits I like, but I do kind of, <laughs> God help me, I agree with Burt Reynolds where I think people were unfairly mean to it. That it is not a good movie, but it is not at all as bad as everyone says. Alicia, that was your, I don't know, mm-hmm. what you got? I mean, I'm insulted on behalf of hamsters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're very entertaining. <laughs> oh, this film. I can talk about this film for yeah. hours. I love Peter Bogdanovich's films. I'm a huge fan. I had not seen this until doing the research for the TV version of this podcast um, about a year <laughs> yeah. ago. And I really thought after reading that um, Ryan Johnson loves it as long as well as, and this is the article, it was like, Ryan Johnson loves this film and as well as his wife. And I'm like, do you mean his wife, Karina Longworth, who did an entire podcast season on Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> and Polly Platt? Yeah. Just name her name. But um, <laughs> yeah. she loves this and she is, you know, an expert in on this era and one of my favorite film historians. So I was like, okay, I bet that I'm going to watch this and mm-hmm. be like, everyone's wrong. I would say it was about 45 seconds in that I was like, oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, to peel back the curtain, I believe all three of us watched it for yes. the TV show. Yes. And came together to say, this movie sucks too hard to be on the TV show. Like, I don't think we even attempted to put I it on the TV show, I tried to get we? some interviews. I lied in my interview um, that's on B-roll saying, trying to find some <laughs> good characteristics of this sure, film. Sure. But yeah, we have not just the three of us, but other noted film critics that appear on the TV show regularly. Just, just launching into so much vitriol that I was like, I don't mm. know for viewers who have not seen this film if this is appropriate. So it got cut. The impressive thing about this film is, and you actually have to sit down and explain it to people, mm-hmm. is how it was made and the ambition sure. of it yeah. being made. Like, that's what makes this film special. That, yes. and I'm going to argue, Madeline Kahn. This is, oh, I she's think, wonderful. one of Madeline Kahn's best things. Oh, I think there's a lot of good comedic performances around the outside mm-hmm. of the film. I think Eileen Brennan and John Hillerman John are very Hillerman was in Day of the Locust. Did you guys notice that? I didn't yeah, that exactly. I Higgins from uh, <laughs> yeah. Magnum P.I., if people don't know who that is. Uh, yeah, I, I think, and the, like, the other thing that's just depressing is, like, Bogdanovich is mm-hmm. good at comedy. Like, What's Up, Doc mm-hmm. is amazing. It's just tough that there's just so much, and I mean, honestly, all the performers are good at comedy. Mm. Maybe not mm. 
uh, Duilio Del Priete, <laughs> or however the hell you say his name, but uh, he's fine. Uh, but everybody else is a great comedic actor, so it just sucks that this movie is such a... Uh, just lays there. Before we start, let's just do a very, very quick, very quick, because the plot doesn't matter, a very quick plot summary of exactly what this <laughs> film is about and kind of what it's set to. It's about wife swapping. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 like a it's a farce about uh, rich rich people and poor people who are thrust together. Uh, uh, Burt Reynolds is an incredibly rich man. Uh, and Sybil Shepherd's well, rich she, as well, she, right? No, she's an or heiress no, without, a, without an heir at this point, yeah. Okay, so yeah. So to be heir too? Yeah. Madeline Kahn and Burt Reynolds are two rich people. Uh, they're all drunks, basically. Well, it's cold uh, quarter, so Sybil yes. Shepherd is especially a drunk. Uh, and just a bunch of, like, drunk fun kind of gets them to fall in love with each other. And then there's also, uh, yeah, I don't know how to say his first name. Duilio. Duilio, uh, he is like a, he's a hustler. He he's the, he uh, the like poor guy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hustlers can be communists. Everybody's got <laughs> he to just make doesn't a have money. He's he's not a millionaire. Um, but uh, they all fall in love. But are they with the right person? And Madeline Kahn and uh, Sybil Shepherd are old uh, schoolmates in some universe. I have another surprise for you. You do? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's very cute. No, not him. Find you. Kathy Crum, you're a nasty girl. Brunsky! P.S. One, two, two! One, two, two! Hurrah for the orange and blue! Two, one, two, two, we will ever be true! She gives us the knowledge to send us to college! Hurrah for the orange and blue! So they kind of uh, fall into each other's circles. Uh, John Hillerman is Burt Reynolds' uh, bedraggled butler, and Eileen Brennan is like the maid slash caretaker of Civil Shepherd. Companion. Uh, they yeah. they want to have sex, except John Hillerman doesn't really want to have sex. Eileen Brennan is just lusty. Oh, he's definitely gay. He's definitely like portrayed in the way that, you know, this whole plot you're describing yeah. is a Lubitsch film from 1930, 1931. It doesn't matter if it's one hour with you. It doesn't matter if it's a smiling lieutenant. Like, this really is a throwback to the earliest earliest mm-hmm. musicals in existence on film um in every single way including the plot and you know that's why i say the john hillerman character is kind of portrayed in the way that yeah. like tony randall's character was often portrayed in the 50s and 60s as as coded i think as potentially um gay which is interesting. He loves his duties, Alisa. <laughs> we should also say that the way the way musicals used to be made before, like, roughly the 60s, was that the music was written first. So, like, Gershwin, Cole Porter, um, people like that would write the music, and then they would write plot around those mm-hmm. songs. So the plot was always a little thin, um, but there was always, like, mm-hmm. something for them to accomplish. Like, Girl Crazy, they were trying to, like, you know, we got to save the town and put on a show in the barn. And then you got Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland dancing around to Gershwin, right? That's their thing. Yeah. Some Something very similar was done here where they tried to write a plot that was like kooky, zany fun around these Cole Porter standards. And so it just did. But now uh, let me. This is my big problem, if I may. Uh, (laughs) Please do. If you wanted to make a Cole Porter musical. Cole Porter made musicals. Yeah, <laughs> like, like yeah. Cole, There's like 19 <laughs> Cole Porter musicals. And something tells me that if Cole Porter wanted his song to be in a musical, he'd have made it into a musical. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he did want to make a Cole Porter musical. I think knowing that Bogdanovich, before he was a filmmaker, was a very respected, and I, I mm. love his writing, a film critic. You know, before he made his debut, which is Targets, I think in 1967, might be 1969, can't 
remember exactly, I think 69. Um, he was a film critic. He was, you know, and when he did make film, it was documentaries on people like John Ford. He knew classic Hollywood and he knew Hollywood of the 1930s really, really well. And that's why I have higher expectations for this film. I don't think it was about the Cole Porter music. I think that's a coincidence because Sybil could potentially sing these songs. It turns out she couldn't, at least not on film. Um, and he was obsessed with the way these films are made because he he wanted it to potentially be black and white, but the studio as well as himself were concerned with ha- he had you know past films in black mm. and white, and black and white wasn't super marketable in 1975. So he's like, that's okay. We'll do it in color, but we're going to make an entire black and white palette. So it's black and white in color, in his own words. And that it's an interesting look. Um, every single character wears either black or white. There's no, like, I think I saw, like, the stem of a flower in one shot. And maybe there's a scene in Central Park where you see some green. But this really is monochrome. He then also, to produce, you know, the musical numbers, in 1975, you would have pre-recorded the music, you know, had the actors listen to it, then dance. You would have cut things together. If your actress can't sing, you dub over them like Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> exactly. And instead, what he does is put little radios in the actors' ears, film the songs live, and force them to do the choreography mm. without cutting, for the most part. And that is hard for a trained singer actor dancer you know with a 40-year history it's really hard for burt reynolds (laughs) Uh, my personal favorite piece of trivia this is they Mm. had to invent the technology so they could do this and frank marshall (laughs) frank marshall who's now a producer for steven spielberg actually got arrested because of this because in pasadena they were picking up the signals from the shoot from these radio transmitters and he was arrested for operating a pirate radio station do you see what you did (laughs) it sounds like also the technology Technology did. did not work <laughs> from the sounds of what all the actors say is it was like, you know, you were barely hearing a tinny version. Apparently, the reason why some of the songs are better is because they could the ones that have the band there because the band could play the music. But otherwise, they were sense. playing music, yeah. feeding music into a little earpiece. And God knows a little earpiece in 1970 is a <laughs> earpiece the size of a satellite dish. So maybe it's not fair necessarily yeah. to blame the performers entirely first of all Burt Reynolds two years prior to this was in the man who loved cat dancing and I do like I don't think he was known for musicals but he would go on and do uh best little whorehouse in Texas so this is something that he kind of carried with him and he he, he's the first person to say you know when he was living Mm. that this film was judged unfairly I need to I've watched it three times It's really painful. I wonder well, if, like, on the sixth or seventh time, I'm going to the, get it, or I'm the, going to. The love one it. thing I give it is I don't think like they aren't over the top amazing dancers. That's fair. I don't think many regular mm-hmm. Hollywood actors are. Like, they can't live up to the 30s dancing. That would never happen. But I don't think they are as bad. They are not amazing singers. But I don't think that that any of them are terrible singers. If you think about where the musical was in 1975 and, and, you know, the way we talk about it as a genre on the TV show, you're in film, you have things like Rocky Mm -hmm. Horror Picture Show. A few years before that, you had Phantom of the Paradise. Like what was popular was revisionist kind of goth linked to the horror genre musicals, you know. And so the idea of Bogdanovich saying, you know what 1975 needs? A revival of the earliest days of the musical when microphone technology did not exist and you had to hide it in a flower on the actress's costume. And, you know, I I said this to Becky, I think, uh, when we were were just kind of prepping. Just because you can doesn't Mm. mean you should. (laughs) And I feel like that would be my tagline for this film. And he did, Bogdanovich, 
issue an apology in the press, like actually took out a half page ad in multiple national newspapers apologizing for this film. Can we talk about yeah, that? Of course we can. Please go ahead. Uh, before we do, just quickly, though, I just want to mention, like, Burt Reynolds, I want to give him full props because the stuff that they make him do while he's singing, swimming in a swimming pool <laughs> and swinging off of a moving Rolls Royce while singing yeah. is pretty freaking insane. Go With ahead. a radio yeah. in his ear. <laughs> exactly. Go Don't ahead. get wet <laughs> in the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> So I, you know, I'd heard this story about him taking out the the ad in April to apologize and explain this film because two there were two preview screenings. They were a total disaster. Uh, it got recut by Fox. And then, you know, when it was released, critics just destroyed it. Like that hamster line that you read, Becky, there's much, much worse out there. And there, there's very misogynist mm-hmm. um, reviews of this film that are very unfair to Sybil Shepard. I'm not saying she was good in this. She's very hard to watch for me. But, you know, criticizing her to the point that these male critics did, I think, is unjust. I mean, Pauline Kale did as well. But uh, here is the letters from April 1975. And here's the thing. It's signed Joseph Bogdanovich. Oh. Which I find very confusing. So I almost question if this is the letter, but I'm pretty sure it has to be based on the date. In order to suppress my enemies, my work will continue to be from one end to the other, a succession of violent, audacious, unfathomable, and subversive wonders that will embrace more mystery, more poetry, more madness, more eroticism, torment, pathos, grandeur, and the cosmology... Yes, that is cosmology. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm reading not, this from a distance and it's a bad PDF. <laughs> and the cosmology of synthesis, because there is no point in bothering to see films that are not sensational exclamation point. There is another paragraph that is mm. as nonsensical as that first one where I'm just like, yeah, it doesn't seem apology? like an apology. It seems like a kind of a defiant, which honestly suits uh, Bogdanovich more. <laughs> I'd, I, I'd imagine he would more take yeah. out a, a page that would say, go flip yourself. Well, here's a line. Okay. So here's the, here's this, and I'm paraphrasing. This is the second uh, paragraph. From emerging from the new and the new, new Hollywood, which is interesting, you are nothing more than snotty apologists of youth, of revolution, undulation, fossilized excrements. What? Of preservation and those who support the collective and therefore opposed to the individual exclamation point. I await you, Hollywood, feverishly, Joseph Bogdanovich. Is that a play on Joseph Stalin? Uh, I don't know. I, don't know I just want on. that to, in my head forever, to go with his Orson Welles mm. voice. Like him just doing mm. Orson Welles. Because I keep thinking of Orson Welles yelling at people, in the depths of your yeah. ignorance, what do you want? <laughs> like, it, it's in that flavor. Yeah. I mean, I have... I, I think this is the letter. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had not read it, but having you read, I can imagine him saying all that. And I, I do have good, <laughs> of course, uh, like, you know, digging through and like, okay, Bogdanovich has to have good stories about, uh, you know, famous people, his, his love of name dropping. Um, and there are good ones. So, part of, like, I mean, what Burt Reynolds says and, uh, I think what most people agree is people were especially vicious towards this movie because they hated the couple that is Peter Bogdanovich and Civil Shepherd. Yeah. I read that. That was a, they they refer to themselves in later interviews as the Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez of their time. <laughs> yes, exactly. And there's a very good thing where he says 
like Bogdanovich actually even says in nowadays that it was their fault <laughs> because he's like he said he said that they were flaunting their life together too much and so his his fun old hollywood stories are uh he said that there was a life magazine that sold a bunch of copies with an article about the two of them where the headline was living together is sexier than being married <laughs> and uh, uh orson wells apparently like threw the copy at him and went i don't know what i think of this <laughs> which is pretty good and also carrie grant phoned him up and immediately said, Peter, will you stop telling people you're happy and stop telling them that you're in love? <laughs> and then he's yeah, like, it's kind of reminiscent but, but of Carrie. Like when, Tom Cruise, when Tom Cruise got on yes. the couch and started yelling about Katie Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. But is yes. that like Cary Grant in his LSD exploration years? Because yes. that might be <laughs> yes. part of it. Well, okay. I, it's interesting because Bogdanovich actually relates it to the fact that, that Cary Grant, you know, kept his relationship a secret as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Cary Grant's parting words to him is, Peter, people do not like beautiful people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which so is uh, pretty good. He, his, his, advice was people are not happy and they are not in love (laughs) in general yeah i I would say to listeners if you want more background on bogdanovich then i would point to karina longworth's you must remember this podcast season which i believe is the most recent one um on polly platt Mm -hmm. who is who bogdanovich left uh to be uh with a 20 year old civil shepherd this is the mother of his uh, children and she was his producer and worked on a lot of aspects of his films um prior to um, prior to uh, when he met her on um, Last Picture uh, Show. Yeah, sorry, Last Picture Show. And then also while divorcing, continued working with him on like Paper Moon and uh, I believe um, What's Up Doc. So, I mean, if you want the background on why Bogdanovich in 1975 would be somewhat of a controversial figure and why he would, as a director, former film critic, be part of tabloids, mm-hmm. listen to some of that because it's really, really well-produced, well-researched. Um, Polly Platt is no longer with us. And unfortunately, even to this day, Bogdanovich gives very unflattering, far too candid, cruel interviews about their marriage that um, really stand in the way of me. I love so many of his films, but I really have a problem with loving some of them sometimes because I'm just like, can you just shut the fuck up? <laughs> Listen, I love... Seriously, like, we know you're a bad person. Can you just... <laughs> like, well, I mean, the one thing I will credit him for is he gave us Madeline Kahn's first film role, which was mm-hmm. in What's Up, Doc? And he also gave her her first Oscar-nominated role, mm-hmm. which was in Paper Moon, which she is so, so freaking yeah. funny. And, um, and I'm sure so Madeline Kahn would have found her way to us regardless. She's just that kind of special talent. Um, or was that just that kind of special talent? But uh, I think in this film, her Find Me a Primitive Man is easily the best number mm. of the whole film. Yeah. And she's so sexy in it. And it stands for me right next to her blazing saddle I'm so tired so, performance it's great I think the reason that that is for me my favorite part of the film as well is it it's camp yeah and it understands camp and that could have been a lens to make a 1930s musical in 1975 is to inject a bit of camp yeah. into it to be subversive to rewrite what is you know what we know is false about the early 1930s and the Marie Chevalier films and the Jeanette McDonald films to rewrite that in a vein of you know drug culture in 1975 where Hollywood is becoming subversive and we are understanding how fake that era was um, as all these actors from that era die horrifically and reveal you know what their lives were like there was a way to kind of instill that just a little bit and I see it in that one number with Madeline Kahn and I see it nowhere else in the film yeah 
I do want to say just as we as we kind of wrap this up, as this is a film, like I said, it was reevaluated and got a very strange recut. Mm-hmm. So what happened was is Peter Bogdanovich got an email from a friend of his being like, hey, did you know that uh, At Long Last Love is up on Netflix? And so he was like, no, I didn't know. And he went in to, re- to look at it again and realized the whole thing had been recut. And apparently what had happened was that someone at Fox had like a soft spot for this and in their spare time decided to piece it back together and cut it into a way that they felt made the film better and make sense. And Bogdanovich agreed and then put all of his emphasis towards getting a Blu-ray release and a full Mm -hmm. restoration for this, which is bonkers. Yeah, it's it's also a movie that famously had like the the test screening was different than the release because it's it's a very interesting I don't get it because I think I would have to see all the cuts and God knows I don't want to sit through them. But Mm -mm. it sounds like it's really a matter of minutes to him. But but he also really feels I think he's internalized that he didn't quite nail the the timing and the and the comedy. And so it's very fascinating because it's all about switching which character starts the film and stuff. Uh, And he's gone back and forth like eight times. Uh, And I'm, I'm not sure that there's a magic. I don't think that's quite the problem with the whole movie, but it's, it's fascinating to know that it's fascinating to hear a director admit that their edits are problematic. Yeah. He does also admit that he was um, an arrogant shit on set. (laughs) He was so, you know, and I give him credit for that. Like he's been, he's being very candid in current interviews um, about his whole career and his life choices. And, you know, we aren't, you you can Google Bogdanovich's relationships in the eighties to get a sense of just how controversial he got. You know, it is interesting where he said that he was so underconfident on this film. Keeping in mind, he had three big hits to his mm-hmm. name. Last Picture Show in 71, Paper Moon, and uh, What's Up, Doc. Now, D- Daisy Miller the year prior yeah. had hugely failed. But he was a bonafide, like, hit. And so he was so underconfident about this film that he acted very defiantly. So when people yeah. were like, are you sure? Like, perhaps we shouldn't invent radios and put them <laughs> in Burt Reynolds' ear while he's in a swimming pool. That could be very dangerous. He'd be like... Just stick to yeah. be like so defiant because he perhaps knew. we shouldn't cast Burt Reynolds. Oh, I mean, I was originally... gonna say uh, you can also give him credit that he was going to star in it himself yeah. and at yeah. least saw the yeah. error in his ways yeah. there. And then it was gonna be Elliot Gould, yes. and Elliot Gould saw what it was and was like, nope. <laughs> no, and then it was Reynolds. Yeah, I, I would also say like if you are going to make an authentic 1930s Lubitsch esque musical, those films which I are, I love with all my heart are 65 to 72 minutes long. Yes. Why is this over two hours? Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I was surprised when I saw like the studio cut it this way. It's like, oh, but it's still <laughs> two hours. Wow. If I was the studio, I might cut more of this out. The final thing that I kind of want to bring up before we go is that he has claimed in later interviews that this was not intended to be in earnest. It was intended to be a send-up. But if that's the case, then why did you spend so much time elaborately making sure that they were singing live in order to recreate the 30s and 40s style and be so honest and true to all that? Do you guys buy that for a second? This is a send-up? No, it's arrogance. He's just yeah. being really arrogant. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, it's just I like, think he would say that today. <laughs> yeah, send-ups. Like, it. What there was super broad send-ups. It's not like, you know, you know, Mel Brooks was around to do this. Yeah, look at what Mel <laughs> Brooks did. Yeah, yeah. So. And I know, I know this film did inspire Woody Allen for Everybody Says I Love You. Or at least that's what Bogdanovich claims. Yeah. So, I mean, this film didn't end in 1975, apparently. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's it's something. You got to watch it. I feel like I would recommend people to watch it, possibly um, on a substance yeah. would be my... And with friends. Like, this isn't yes. one that you sit down and you're like, finally, toss some alone time. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to watch some singing and dancing. Like, no, it's uh, yeah. watch it with some buddies. That's the a, best a, way a to co- do this. A COVID movie, this is not. No. I think that's everything for this week. So once again, I want to thank Alicia Fletcher. Thank you, Becky. Um, I do want to apologize to the descendants of Buster Phelps, the little boy that I said I wanted to drown um, in Three on a Match, who is the inspiration for Jack Early Haley's character. I do realize that that was insensitive, and I do like children. I don't often fantasize about them dying. Well, thank you. Thank you, Alicia, for that clarification. I'll make sure that stays in the picture. Uh, And Cameron Maitland, thank you so much for being part of this once again. Yeah, thanks. I I, I don't have any apologies. (laughs) I will just say, (laughs) if you want live singing uh, musicals from the 1970s, go with like The Rose or A Star Is Born, not... uh, Not this one. Okay, that's it for this week. Join us again next week when we look at a movie that transformed the Munich Basketball Hall into a rollerball blood sport rink. Guess which movie we're talking about. It's going to be a good one. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines, executive